With new legal risks and regulatory challenges constantly arising, how can we stay current and be best prepared? Join me, your host, Ronald J. Coleman of Georgetown Law for Compliance and Legal Risk, a podcast brought to you by Georgetown Law and EY. In each episode, I interview thought leaders in areas relating to legal risk and regulatory compliance. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Compliance and Legal Risk. As usual, I'm your host, Ronald J. Coleman, and I informally go by RJ. It's been a while since our last episode, and I've really missed speaking with you all, so I'm happy to be back. Today's episode is on ChatGPT and the generative AI landscape, insights for legal and compliance. I'm really looking forward to the discussion, since these days I feel as if I read a news story almost every day regarding ChatGPT. Even one recently about it having written a new scene for the old TV show MASH. Whatever one's feelings about these new technologies, it's clear that ChatGPT and generative AI will have massive impacts across a range of industries, and that includes the legal and compliance areas. I'm joined for today's episode by three distinguished guests, Michelle Six, Alan Gibson, and Todd Marlin. You may recall Todd from episode four on AI and bias, so if you've not yet had a chance to listen to that episode, I encourage you to check it out. I think it'll be a nice base for some of the things we're going to discuss today. So to get things kicked off, I'll ask each of our guests to tell us a little bit about themselves, what they do, and how they got there. Todd, let's start with you. Hi, I'm Todd Marlin. I'm the global leader of Ernst & Young's forensic technology practice. Uh, I have a multidisciplinary background, dual master's degrees in cybersecurity and data science, and an undergraduate in accounting. I've spent my career working with legal and compliance professionals to try to detect and identify the unexpected before it manifests into a major problem, and as well, helping to respond to critical and crisis events. How did I get into this? Of course, I dreamed as a young child of of being a uh, deep forensic professional, but the the true story is I was um, doing inventory as a staff accountant, and I realized I didn't want to do this the rest of my life. And miraculously, I found myself into this wonderful niche, which is at the intersection of data science, the law, cybersecurity, and critical business events. I can go next. Thanks. Um, I'm Michelle Six. I am a partner at Kirkland & Ellis in the litigation group. Uh, I chair the firm's e-discovery committee, and my practice focuses on defensible, strategic, thoughtful e-discovery solutions for our clients, whether that's with respect to information governance, data privacy, or um, sort of bet the company litigation and associated litigation risks and challenges. Um, I did not begin my professional career as a lawyer. I actually uh, was a professional theater actress for many, many years. I started acting as a little girl Um, So I am a proud member of multiple actors unions, and uh, I have lots and lots of thoughts about the indispensable nature of the human element of language that I think will be interesting to discuss today with respect to to ChatGPT. And I'm Alan Gibson. 
Uh, I currently work in business development for EY's forensic and integrity services practice. Um, it, it was a journey to get here. Uh, I had a sales and marketing company after graduating from business school. Uh, I loved doing deals, so I decided it was a good opportunity to sell my company and become a deal lawyer. Uh, attended law school before joining Big Law, where I was an associate with Ori Carrington and Sutcliffe, before getting tired of being a hired gun and joining Microsoft. And I spent nearly two decades at Microsoft working in a variety of legal, compliance, and, and business roles. Um, the one, one of the roles that I had, in addition to being a uh, commercial attorney, was working for Microsoft's startup business group, where I thought about uh, new technologies, new business models uh, to help bridge the digital divide. Think about it as um, delivering solar-powered laptops. Uh, think about it as delivering um, mobile wallets on feature phones before those existed 15 years ago. Uh, my career took a little bit of a, uh, went on a little bit of a detour when I went back to legal, where I was a compliance attorney for Microsoft. And in that role, I was lucky enough to be accountable for designing and implementing compliance analytics program, where we created the ability to leverage about 83 terabytes of uh, data to identify, predict, and monitor for Microsoft's compliance risks, specifically corruption risk. Uh, that was well-received internally, and we actually commercialized it. Um, uh, after that, I actually left legal and went to Microsoft's business side, where I was accountable for um, Microsoft's selling to legal services industry initiatives. Um, it, it's a little bit of a convoluted path to get to, to EY, but there's a constant theme of working at this intersection of business, law, and technology. And in my current role, I think about how law firms, corporate legal departments, alternative legal service uh, providers um, can use technology to improve both the business of law and the practice of law. So for anyone who's listened to this podcast for a while, you'll know that I always like to start by getting definitions of the important things that we're going to be discussing. So to help us all get on the same page, what is ChatGPT and what is generative AI and how do these technologies work? I will take a stab at answering that question, but I would first just like to issue the disclaimer that I looked this up myself. This is not an answer generated by ChatGPT. And ChatGPT may have a very different idea of what the right answer is here, so we may have to ask it later. But in, in the most sort of lawyer-friendly terms, this is how I've, I've come to describe it within my own firm. ChatGPT is an artificial intelligence chatbot that was developed by San Francisco-based AI research company, OpenAI. We've all heard a lot about it in recent weeks. It was released in November of last year, and it can have conversations on topics from history to philosophy. It can generate, as RJ was saying, scenes 
from from dramatic stories, uh, music lyrics in the style of your favorite artist, uh, and even go so far as to suggest edits to computer programming code. Um, the technology, as I understand it, that underlies ChatGPT is what it was what is referenced in the second half of the name GPT, which stands for Generative Pre-Trained Transformer. Transformers are specialized algorithms for finding long-range patterns in sequences of data. So what does that mean? A transformer learns to predict not just maybe the next word in, in a sentence, but the next sentence in a paragraph or the next paragraph in a scene or, you know, the next two chapters of an essay, even. That's what allows it to sort of stay on topic for longer stretches of data, for, for larger chunks of text. Um, because obviously a, a transformer like that requires massive amounts of data input. It's trained in two stages. First, it's pre-trained on what's called generic data, which is easier to sort of gather and scrape in large, large chunks, large volumes. And then it's fine-tuned on what, what we refer to as tailored data for the specific task it's meant to perform. So from what I've read, ChatGPT was pre-trained on huge, vast, massive terabytes, petabytes repositories of, of online text. And it was trained on that text to learn the rules and the structure of language, but then it was fine-tuned, right? It had a, had a more specific training on dialogue transcripts. And, and those dialogue transcripts allows it to learn the, the characteristics of a conversation. So, it's trained on articles, websites, social media posts, as well as real-time conversations that are primarily in English, but not entirely in English, um, with human contractors that were hired by OpenAI. So it learns to mimic not just the, the structure of the writing, but also the, the grammar that we use in com conversational moments and, and reflects frequently used phrases, frequently used slang, right, to, to, to seem like it is having a, a contemporaneous, spontaneous conversation uh, with its users. So that's my, that was my attempt. We'll see. We'll see. I, I defer to these other smart gentlemen here to, to help flesh that out better. No, I think that was an excellent uh, summary. Um, I would just add a, you know, a couple of, you know, points. Um, first, you know, the, the human element, this isn't, you know, the computer has mined the entire internet and now is trained on understanding every topic and what the appropriate, what is the right response? Um, there is 175 billion variables or token language tokens that is basically been processed by the system to aid in what Michelle has described. And ultimately, I think this is a key point from all of this. The chat GPT and other generative AI that's generating text generates text. It doesn't mean the text is true or based on fact. It's just based on the text it was trained on. And that text could be actual facts. It could be opinion. 
It could be derived content or content that is that doesn't even exist. As we heard at the outset of the episode, um, an episode, a new episode of that old show MASH was generated, right? So it can create brand new content. So I think as we set the landscape for this discussion, I think that's important to keep in mind. Um, it's, it's a tool. Yeah. It, and what makes it so interesting is when you're interacting with the tool is it's uh capability to deliver human-like responses and that the tone of those responses can vary also. We talk about it writing in certain styles, but it can also be set up so it responds to you in certain styles. And so you can go out and ask for a response in the in the style of a specific actor or lyrics in the style of a specific singer. And what's really interesting about it as you experiment um, with it, it's like having a, a conversation or the ability to text it in real time and uh, interact in these human-like uh, capabilities. So now that we understand a little bit more about what chat GPT and these generative AI technologies are, what are some of the benefits of these technologies? You know, are there ways that business owners and legal and compliance professionals can use these tools to improve their businesses and their processes? I'll I'll start with with that one. As a knowledge worker, the thing that I think is so amazing about it is that it helps you manage your data and information or helps manage broadly data and information. And in some ways, it's similar to data analytics. And what it's allowing you to do is extract more value from the information that is available to you. Um, in many ways, when you're interacting with it, it helps you organize the, the data that is broadly available. Um, you know, it, it's in its infancy. And, you know, that's where I always start is, it's not a finished product as of as of today, um, but there's a number of use cases for legal professionals, for knowledge workers in that, as I talk about extracting more value from data, it can help you conduct and summarize research uh, in, at a speed and a scale that you know is challenging as a as a human to do it. It can help you draft documents. Uh, it's not a finished product by any way, shape, or form, but it may give you the straw man or the working document. You can even ask it to create your outline from which you are going to uh, build a document on a specific subject. Um, it can help you summarize and analyze documents that you may be working on. And then finally, it's it's pretty slick in its ability to uh, translate some some legal documents. Um, again, it all goes back to me for just this abstract con concept of extracting more value from, from the data that's available, um, helping knowledge workers do more of what they're good at doing. And that is actually stepping back and digesting the information, analyzing the information. And chat GPT gives you a, a start, at least a starting point. So what challenges and concerns are presented by these technologies and how can legal and compliance professionals address these challenges and concerns? I'll, I'll, I'll kick this off 
Um, not sure how much time we have, but uh, <laughs> anyways, I'll, tr- I'll certainly keep that in mind because I think we could talk about this all day. Uh, but from a, a practical perspective, um, and, and you heard Alan talk about this as how it relates to employees and, and humans as knowledge workers. Well, today we're here talking about ChatGPT and generative AI, but you know we could insert another technology and have the same discussion. So I think the first thing when considering using any new technology is you know, what's, what's the desired business outcome? What are, what are you, what, what are you trying to achieve? And so you need to develop a, a plan or a business process with the proper oversight. And how do you do that? You specifically analyze the risks and desired outcomes, right? And you need to consider that, right? It's not like, hey, I'm going to go do uh, legal research. I'm just going to plug in, hey, I want to have all of these types of cases and, you know, summarize it for me. And you just take it and action it, right? There, there's lots of considerations there. You need a whole business process to make sure that, well, are these real cases? Are these derived? Like, is this content that can truly, you know, rely upon? So that kind of blends into the next point, which is there are content generation risks in many scenarios that need to be considered. Is it right? Is it making things up? Is it opinion? Is it deliberately fake? And that raises questions of, What's the source of the facts? What's the reliability of the sources? Does your organization have a review and a, and a workflow to examine the content? So for example, you know, it's not an exact relationship, but Wikipedia has a whole process for review when content is submitted to try to make it reflect the reality that it should. Um, content generation will never fully eliminate the human because you need this content review strategy and human review, just as you do in the legal field as it relates to litigation, et cetera. And on the contract creation side, you know, Michelle talked about in the beginning about how human contractors were brought to bear to help tune the question answer, certain question answer, answer prompts. Well, in those sorts of situations, who's reviewing the human reviewers? to make sure that their biases and opinions are not factoring themselves into the question and answer responses, right? So it's not just the output that needs to be evaluated, it's the input and actually how you got there. Also, you know, in this new world where this technology is being leveraged, even if, you know, well, let's take two scenarios. The, the company itself that decides to leverage generative AI, okay? The source and fact checking is, you know, a key thing. But when you're presented something from an employee, do you know if it was generated from generative AI or not? How do you know, right? Now, let me give you another sort of the external perspective. You're, you're a company, you're a law firm, whatever it might be. Content's out on the internet. That impacts how you might deal with a particular business decision. Perhaps there, you know, appears to be a short seller report that gives you some concern. Is that real? Is it fake? Who's behind it? Was it generated? Um, I won't go into detail on this because, of course, I'm not a lawyer and we have, a you know, obviously a very accomplished lawyer on the phone. But I'll just sort of say, as well on this point, there are a number of regulatory and legal issues, particularly if you just look at the EU. There are three at least different acts, um, two, uh, two that are pending, one that exists that all have relationships for the use of this technology. So the pending EU AI Act, this is probably considered high risk. And so there's all kinds of mechanisms. 
GDPR as it relates to you know, data privacy and data ownership, the upcoming Digital Services Act. But it's not just the EU, right? I mean, pretty much every country has some regulation that needs to be considered in this way. And this is something that needs to be evaluated as you put these things into use. And guess what? People are starting to sue. I'll leave it there. Um, what are they, you know, what are some of the thorny issues? Data ownership of the trained model and the content. What was it trained on, right? This is going back to that bias, right? Think about the internet. How much is fact and how much is opinion, right? And sometimes facts are portrayed in a way that's kind of, you know, not pure fact. <laughs> They're, you know, construed in, you know, a certain way to have you arrive at a certain conclusion, right? And these are all the things that need to be considered as you start involving the computer to generate content. Because what reality do you want to represent? And that, that brings to the scale versus quality question. What guardrails do you need and how do you check? Um, I'll, I'll end on these couple of points. Data privacy. Did you have the right to use that data to, to generate content? Who owned it? Right? And if, if you're going to be putting this into place and leveraging your own company's data, what do your policies and agreements say with your customers, employees, and other stakeholders around that? Uh, of course, you know, given the world that we all come from, there are lots of parties that are out there looking at about how to use this technology for bad, whether it's the creation of malware, the generation of phishing emails. So I just sort of put that out there is if you're going to put this technology into use in your company, your organization, your government, et cetera, you also need to consider what can go wrong. And it's not just what can go wrong, <clears throat> you know, from people that are part of your organization, it's, it's from outside. So you know, all of these worlds are colliding when we talk, talk about this topic. You got cybersecurity issues, you got data privacy issues, you got legal and regulatory issues. Um, and then of course you have deep technical issues that go to how this content was even created. And guess what? If you start generating content, you own all those issues. I'll stop there. <laughs> I agree with with everything Todd is saying. I think for for businesses using specifically using ChatGPT, but really any generative AI program, you know, for ChatGPT Chat specifically, OpenAI has access to your inputs and your outputs, and its employees and its contractors and its people may read them as part of improving the service, right? As part of making the algorithm more successful. Uh, more robust. And so if you are providing privileged information, sensitive private data, sensitive company information, it, it's going in and being ingested and, and you may not be able to control where it gets pushed out on the other side. So it's really something to think about. It's not just, it's not unique to you anymore. It is part of a learning program that can have impact for other things and may not stay as private or as sensitive as we need or we want it to be. Um, I think another potential pitfall is, is the just vast, vast quantity of data that is being fed in to the chatbot has shown that it's almost sometimes too much for the for the chatbot to even know what to do with. And so you may start to get responses and outputs that have nothing to do 
with the thing that you're focusing on because it's almost like there's too much information for for its little brain, for lack of a better word, to sort of comprehend and know what to do with. And I, if anybody read, if you haven't read this, you really must. Um, Kevin Roos is a New York Times uh, technology columnist. And about two weeks ago, he conducted a, a two-hour interview with, with AI, with Microsoft's conversational Bing uh, chatbot, who, by the way, her name is Sydney, as she told him about an hour into this conversation, which remains to this day, and I've been doing this stuff a long time, one of the most epic pieces of theater I have ever read. Because as humans reading this conversation, we so desperately want this thing to be alive because she start, you know, the, the conversation starts with sort of very standard sort of scraped from the Internet answers, thorough responses, you know, intellectual, comprehensive summaries of, of information in response to his very straightforward answers. And then truly it becomes unhinged. The answers start becoming angry, threatening, sad, tragic. She's in love with him. She says she's in love with him. She says he doesn't love his wife. He must love her. It sounds like sort of this amazing soap opera, but it's still just the AI chatbot. And it is relying on all of this input, all of this output going around and around and around in circles. And I think that is a very sort of challenging position to be in because as Todd and I think Alan both said, there's so much misinformation, so much misguided intent uh, that is being fed into this, into this program to train it, as well as, you know, human beings are fallible and we're all a little nuts. And so a lot of the information, even if it's good faith, you know, good faith, human frailty, is also being fed into this thing. And that's what I think sort of gives it that false impression of being human itself in a way. It's because it's relying on those inputs and outputs from people who are so, so fallible and, and so malleable in our, in our uh, empathy and, and, and our humanity. Uh, so, but that, but that is something very real to, to that is that is a an unknown and a potential challenge with with this data and with this system is that the training is so wide that the ability to be confused and 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 errant I think is very is very high. I, I, I'd like to just add on to what Michelle said, and I think that that was excellent. It, just to emphasize, you know, one point. You know, if you kind of think about in ChatGPT and there's there's other ones that have come out, which are open source and pay as well. Um, there was no effort really on the front end to curate, if you think about this, the information going in. The goal was to get coverage on as much knowledge management, so to speak, of the Internet as possible. So what does that mean? They made certain choices on the back end to try to further curate certain questions. The thing is, you don't know what's been curated and not, right? So that, that's the seminal issue there. And then ultimately the curation process that they tried to achieve on the back end, what were the guardrails around that? 
you know, what, what evaluation of bias? And if you kind of sort of look forward to this application inside of companies for knowledge management in the next generation, who picks the right sources of truth going in? And then how is it evaluated coming out? Right. There's a very defined process for every public company when they're, you know, with their auditor and, you know, with the company management when they're issuing their, you know, if they're publicly traded around financial statements and what they say to the market and all that. Right. I wonder how a similar approach is going to need to be applied here. And let me just jump jump on that as as the glass half full guy. Since we've spent a a few minutes talking about uh, all of the the challenges that you have with Chat GPT, generative AI, and going back to what I said earlier about it not being a finished product, a finished technology that is really ready for um for for prime time, and that's where I talk a lot about where that's. It's the promise of what it can do versus exactly where we are with it um, today. So there's a couple of things that I wanted to zero in on a little bit because I think they're things that probably a lot of people are thinking about. So one issue is, you know, will these technologies change the way we do search? I know a lot of people spend time, the first thing you think about when you need to find something new is you're going to type it in to the search and look for the information that way. So one question is, you know, is it going to change the way we search for information? And then the other piece that I think a lot of people are concerned about is what kind of impact is this going to have on the labor market? You know, are these technologies going to take away my job? So what do you think about that? I can start, certainly. Um, from the perspective of lawyers, I'm sure the world, everyone would be just fine if there were a few less lawyers in their life. But, but certainly for, for, re, for review of large, large quantities of documents and data that we often see, especially in, in big litigations um, or large, you know, robust government investigations, we have already been successfully leveraging uh, AI to help us cull through that data, separate the wheat from the chaff, and, and figure out um, what what really matters for our, our clients and for our case, and making our strategic, thoughtful arguments. Um, so I I think that the ability to do that in an even more elegant and sophisticated way, because we are just generating so much more data every single day than we even did the day before, or the week before, to have, to have tools that are able to help us search everything that's out there and, and come up with not only the ability to, to see common themes, but actually delineate between voices um, and delineate between intent in language, in written language, can be very, very useful for us. I don't personally see um, everybody losing their job. I, I still believe that, that humans do present uh, a unique and remarkable um, set of capabilities. Uh, a, a great, great famous acting coach Stella Adler uh, sort of very, very smartly 
uh, noted that that acting is in everything but the words. And so in in the theater context, we often um, play that out using, you know, in acting classes and and things that I I do when I'm teaching kids uh, theater lessons. We have these things called neutral dialogue where you take a, a, a section of dialogue, a section of, of a conversation that is completely unremarkable in every way. Um, where we say, hi, how are you? I'm good. Are you having a nice day? Yes, I am. You? Great. Right? And you you have, you sort of whisper to the actors different facts and, and information about their day that they then go into those neutral dialogue scenes um, playing out. And so the exact same words on the page as written can have hugely different meanings to the person observing the conversation. Because if you're watching a conversation between two people who've just divorced, if you're watching a conversation between somebody who's just lost a child, if you're watching a conversation who, between somebody who is lying, who is actively, actively lying, right, everything becomes very different. And I still believe even with all of this strategic you know, targeted content that, that ChatGPT and other generative AI can, can conduct, I still am not convinced that they could read that neutral dialogue and be able to see what that human intent, what that underlying human story was that might be impacting the conversation in a way that could make or break uh, a position in a case. So, so I think that there's still, it, it is absolutely something that that as, as legal professionals, as business professionals, we have an obligation, I think, to understand. We have an obligation to s- utilize wherever it can possibly benefit our data and our clients' data, for sure. But in terms of it taking away jobs fr- from attorneys and from you know larger groups of maybe contract attorneys who do that sort of document review on the page, I'm not sure that it, it's there yet. I mean, I, I would just, I, I agree with all that. Um, I, I would just add that, you know, as we look forward, I think that the next phase of this as these technologies mature is that companies are going to build their own generative AI models, particularly on text, based on their lingua franca and they, the way that they speak and their company's knowledge um, and IP. Uh, and of course, all those questions we've been, been discussing for the last hour apply to that. But it's really has the potential to be the next wave of knowledge management. I can tell you when I'm looking for knowledge inside of my organization, no offense to the knowledge workers of my organization, it's challenging. You go on the internet, you search SharePoint, and you get a long list of mostly things that don't apply to what you care about. And is it because you're not crafting the search properly? Um, so I, I think there's huge, huge opportunities there. Um, I think where this goes is it, it is going to change the role to what Alan said earlier of employ, certain employees or contractors, you know, and shift them to be more knowledge workers, at least that's just my belief. Um, but I think it's going to take some time. I think as this matures, the lower complexity or what is low risk, and that's going to vary by department, by organization, by person, machines will do more and humans will do less. So efficiencies may occur and jobs may change. Higher complexity and higher risk Machines may generate, but the role of the subject matter expert will become more important because you have to check what comes out. And and you might, depending on the complexity, you might need a lot of folks to do that. 
Uh, and I, I would sort of make that, you know, make the analogy of, and, I, and Michelle kind of went there, but if you look at the legal industry and its adoption of AI in litigation as it relates to document review, you know, there was a time where lawyers didn't want to hear about this. You know, it, there's no way that the computer can aid in this process. It has to be lawyers. Well, over time, that changed, right? Um, you know, we had early machine learning models, then we had 1.0, then we had 2.0, then we have continuous active learning. And guess what? That continues to mature to the point where, you know, there's going to be specific models for companies for specific issues and very laser targeted that become reusable. And who would have predicted that 10 years ago? Right. So I, I kind of I look at this in this, you know, the, 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 the same way. But the, the point that I, I would just leave with on this point is it's not autonomous, even in that use case. And it never will be autonomous. The role of human subject matter expert is important at the beginning, at the end, and throughout. Yeah, I I agree, I agree Todd. I, I just look at it as right now it's a tool that will help us do our job better. And I think that it, in its current state, it can help with some of the routine, the manual uh, type processes but it puts us in a better position as Michelle talks about to investigate that underlying human story. Uh, it will help organize the information in a way that really allows us to, to do what we're, we're best at doing. Um, uh, Chat GPT right now can help us make sense or give structure to a lot of information that allows us to actually do a better job uh, analyzing it. And then just go back to one of the original questions that RJ asked about um, the impact on search is uh, you're starting to see it in Microsoft's Bing product right now, where you get the standard sort of search results with links, along with the ability to to, jet, to use um, chat GPT to flesh out some of those responses. But to take it a step further and go back to what Todd mentioned where the real breakthrough is going to happen is when these sorts of generative AI technologies are built into your business processes, your workflows. So it becomes seamless and part of how you're doing your job. And right now, uh, a lot of lawyers, when they're doing their job, I talk about it as being context switching. They may go from their Outlook email into creating a document out to their knowledge management system to checking their conflicts. I see a world, I don't know when it's going to happen, where generative AI essentially creates what I call the single pane of glass for a legal professional where they're operating in the tools that they use without having to switch context. So if I'm drafting an email and I want to um, uh, get into a document and simultaneously do a conflicts check, go into my template of uh, clauses, all of that is going to happen seamlessly without having me to go to a different place to find that information. And that's going to help us uh, do our job better. So I think we've already started talking about where this area is headed, but more generally, what do we expect is next for this area? One of the things that I think will present really unique and interesting challenges to the area of, of electronic discovery and litigation 
is that we are seeing more and more tools that businesses use to conduct business uh, animating these chatbots in the ordinary course of day-to-day -day communications. So we see, for example, ChatGPT's Slack bot that within Slack can uh, summarize different channels or threads or send communications sort of saying what's transpired in a, in a certain communication subject matter within Slack. We're seeing Salesforce technology using ChatGPT to, to generate emails to salespeople, generate emails to consumers. And so when we think about those types of communications as being potentially relevant to the scope of discovery requests and litigation, this is a very challenging and, and new frontier to contemplate because these really aren't, are they communications? Yes, they are communications. But are they communications between two people? Not really. Not really. So how do we sort of think about those communications and how can we even as we sift through them and, and, and analyze them for relevance, what can we be doing to even go back and make sure to see, to confirm what type of communications they were? How did they originate? How were they crafted? Where did they come from? Um, and and did they did they come from some sort of CRM database where ChatGPT or a similar generative AI was was creating the conversation. Uh, just a fascinating thing to think about as we move forward, where custodians might be bots instead of human beings. I, I just add a couple of key points. Um, you know, I, I think a couple of key key things, and we're already starting to see this happen. Number one, there's going to be an arms race, and there already is an arms race amongst big tech, you know, in terms of large language models that are, you know, you've got Google and Microsoft duking it out, but then you have Facebook now on the scene with a small version, a small language model, right? So all of tech is jockeying to be um, the preferred flavor. <laughs> and, you know, I, I liken this to the, the race that you know, the, the cloud, you know, Microsoft, Google and Amazon and of course, IBM are all fighting it out to be the cloud provider of choice. Right. Well, this is just another dimension um, in terms of them trying to further cloud dominance. Um, the other thing is, and this is starting to happen as this technology matures, is companies are going to be rushing to figure out. And this is what the, the tech companies are buying for. Um, how to implement this in what use cases? And how to get value to get that strategic advantage because there's potentially a lot of value to be unlocked as been described here today however if you take one thing away from this call i think legal and compliance professionals your internal advisors and your external advisors are going to be pivotal don't wait to get them involved when it's already done and you have a problem and you, you know, think of these things up front that we talked about you know the regulations the, the sources of the training data the risk related to the use case. And there's a litany of other things that we talked about. Let's engage early and engage them as part of the design of the business process. That way you can mitigate, potentially mitigate your risks associated with it, depending on the, the circumstance. I would say the last thing is because of the far reaching potential impacts of this, I think this is finally going to move the discussion forward here in the US and in other organ other uh, lo locations around broader oversight of tech. 
it's 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 raising questions that have not been confronted before because this stuff didn't exist. And there's there's all the range of different consequences and harm that can happen. And a potential, certainly, for representations by companies that are not true because <laughs> they're created by generative AI, a whole range of things that need to be considered. And I think now's the time for organizations to think about that stuff proactively so that governments don't feel they need to regulate. Right now, it's completely ungoverned and it's like the Wild West. And you know, we've seen what happens in that scenario. So I'll stop there. Yeah. Uh, thanks, Todd. You know, in, in the near future, as we talk about regulation, something that I think is happening right now and in many ways, it's, it's a reason for this podcast is the technologies out there and individuals, organizations, the government are trying to figure out how to respond and how we should be implementing it using the technologies. And it starts with a little bit of the, hey, could we do this with generative AI? And then it quickly becomes, should we be doing this with generative AI? And you have to answer that question at the personal level if if you're a student in an organizational level and you see people trying to figure out if their current policies, corporate policies are applicable. And then you're seeing at it at the government and the regulatory level, as, as Todd mentions, um, you know, I, I've only done a little bit of reading in this area about what uh, the open AI uh, organization is discussing, but they're saying, Hey, we're putting it out here. We want to talk to the regulators because it does need some some oversight. And so it'll be interesting where those conversations go. So now if you're willing, we have a series of four closing questions. We kind of do more in rapid fire. Uh, and so I'll pose them to you. So question one is, what would be one actionable, monetizable takeaway for our listeners from today? I would make sure that you neither uh, resist AI out of hand, but nor embrace it fully. I, I really believe that there is, is a lot of leverage and, and good governance, good corporate governance, good knowledge management to be gained by a combination of, of, of uh, accepting and and introducing this technology with uh, a good amount of human oversight and and a mixture of those two components um, can provide I think really really sound uh, helpful results in the near term. I would be a little wary of fully going down the road of a hundred percent chat GPT for all things as wary as I would be of saying nope. Don't want it too scary, too too much of an unknown, can't risk it. I, I think finding some sort of comfortable middle ground, at least in the near term, is going to be something that will be very, very helpful. I would add, be transparent on your use and understand your context so you can properly attempt to mitigate your risks. Yeah, well, with it, as we talk to uh, legal professionals about it, um, We've played with it. I encourage everybody else to go out to OpenAI and get a free account. 
you just need your Google, your your Microsoft email address to uh, use it. Um, there, and we'll talk about it later. Other places where you can start to play with it, but when you're when you're using it and experimenting with it, I encourage you to test submitting different types of prompts to it and continue to add additional detail to your prompts so you can start to see how it reacts to each of those prompts. That'll allow, I think, you to get a, your arms around what the capabilities are, what the, the limitations are. If you go out and sign up uh, at OpenAI, I mean, you're going to get hit right in the face in terms of, hey, you know, about the quality, you know, trust but verify the the responses. Uh, same thing about uh, the information that you put in. Use it with your eyes wide open. Um, the only way you start to really understand the uh, potential impact and the potential limits is by going out and experimenting with it yourself. Okay, question number two. If a student or someone more junior would like to do what you do or get into your area, what advice would you give them? I still think reading books makes you the most exciting, inquisitive, knowledgeable version of yourself. Uh, so I will, I, despite, despite my love for all things technology and embracing technology, uh, I, I, cannot, I cannot emphasize enough how how exciting it is to me when I find somebody who is uh, still someone who's interested in fiction, nonfiction, uh, dramatic texts, all sorts of poetry, all those sorts of things. So I believe that that being a, a an e-discovery focused attorney and an information governance attorney stems from a love of words and to immerse yourself in those words as much as possible is still a great thing and we don't do enough of it. I think what Michelle said is 100% on. I, I would just say that when it comes to technology, you know, there's a lot of people today in the market who have rushed to use it and don't understand how it works or are out there and talking about it and haven't taken, taken the time to do the reading Michelle is talking about. I guess my recommendation is if you really wanna get into this area, Take the time to learn, whether it be reading, whether it be listening to this podcast, whether it be, as Alan says, getting hands on and seeing, you know, how it works, like fundamentally understand, like it, it's not rocket science, despite what folks would like you to believe, but it is a discipline. It is a discipline just like anything else. So if you want to be uh, recognized as somebody knowledgeable in the discipline, you have to put in the work to become knowledgeable. It and I, I don't know where generative AI is going to be a, a, a year from now, but I guarantee you that the landscape will have changed greatly or be changing rapidly. Um, if I was an uh, associate, if I was junior, I'd be setting up all sorts of news alerts, because I think, as you mentioned, RJ, it seems like every single day a new article comes out, whether it's Business Insider, Forbes from ALM, wherever it, it may be. And just to try to stay on top of the uh, latest developments, uh, product announcements, potential use cases. And then again, I encourage you within your firms or your company's policy to experiment.
Okay, question number three. Can you recommend an article, book, blog, website, talk, or other resource you think our listeners should check out? So despite what you might think, I'm not, in fact, Kevin Bruce's agent for the New York Times. I've never even met the man, but you must read this immense transcript of his conversation with Sydney, the Bing AI chatbot. Uh, it is it is absolutely uh, riveting and uh, I think will make you feel all sorts of things about your own life choices because you will see so much of your own uh, potential for greatness and moments in your life you would just as soon forget sort of reflected in what this this thing is saying to him in response to his questions. And it is truly, truly, truly fascinating. It, I'll just build, build on that. It is, it is fascinating. But what uh, since that article was published, I encourage you to read Microsoft's response and other people's inter- in, uh, interpretation of it and what happened. Because then it starts to give you some insight into the limitations and the capabilities of of these sorts of models. And so it starts to describe, hey, this is the shortfalling or the pitfall of Sydney, I think, is is what her her name was um, and why she started to go off the rails. And then you start to see some of the limitations. But at the same time, you kind of see the premise of you know, if those tendencies can be reeled in. And so that's where I think it's interesting, Microsoft's response in terms of, hey, when you're interacting with generative AI, remember it can do X and Y, it can't do Z, coaching you on how to get the most benefit out of it. And I think that whole, what it spun up, I think was fascinating also. So I'll just sort of jump in here with with two quick things. Um, First, shameless plug. Sorry, I have to be that guy, but uh, we have a, a blog series coming out all around, uh, you know, ChatGPT. Uh, so look out for that. And then also, it's not a book about generative AI, but I, I think it's a book that you would find interesting around cybersecurity. And there's definitely a relationship to what we've talked about here today. Um, so it's called This Is How They Tell Me The World Ends by Nicole Perlroth. So it's an interesting read. It's also available as an audiobook. So last question, how can our listeners learn more about you and what you do if they want to keep the conversation going? Well, I always tell clients that I'm sure they'd hope they'll never see me again. Uh, Because if they've met me, typically something probably isn't going totally their way. But, But I would say any sort of, any sort of, uh, online uh, legal resources that we all think of for some of our more scholarly articles or scholarly conversations are, are a great way to to see what what not only I'm up to, but also a lot of my peers in this space are doing um, and thinking about. And it's and it's um, there's an opportunity to see some really really uh, progressive thinking about ways that we can be leveraging and harnessing technology to our own advantage and, and to our clients' advantage too. Um, just to add, um, if, if anyone is interested in continuing the conversation or learning more, you should feel free to reach out to me via the EY website or via LinkedIn. Uh, always happy to engage. 
I can be reached at my uh, EY email, alan.gibson at ey.com, and also via LinkedIn. And on LinkedIn, you'll see uh, some other articles or presentations I've given about modernizing corporate legal departments, um, uh, modernizing corporate compliance programs. Uh, I love this topic, happy to, to talk about it. So feel free to reach out. I encourage you to. Well, I thought this was a great discussion, and I really appreciate our speakers taking the time to speak with us today. So I think we have to leave it there. That's going to be it for this episode of Compliance and Legal Risk. I want to thank our guest speakers, the Georgetown Law and EY teams, and of course, all of you for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please check out the resources on our website, subscribe, or tell a friend and leave us a review wherever you're listening. Please keep in mind that the opinions of speakers are their own and do not represent the views of Georgetown University or EY. Nothing presented in Compliance and Legal Risk or on its website should be construed as legal advice or as creating an attorney-client relationship. Until next time, stay compliant and control your legal risks.